from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Dallas, Texas, on this week's edition, the state of green business. A look inside from our reporters and analysts. Circularity becomes measurable, and AT&T dials in on its climate impacts. I guess that means we're still ringing in the new. This week on 350. It's January 17th, 2020. Wow, we're already halfway through January. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as she does most weeks from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. Yes, it feels like I'm about three months in already instead of almost three weeks. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's that's partly a nature of this time of year for us, the cyclical nature of our Green Biz 20 conference coming up in just a little uh, less than three weeks. Um, and there, I got the plug in at the top of the show. I didn't even have to wait. Uh, but that's it keeps us hopping. Um, but even before that, this week was uh, another big week, particularly for you and me and the editorial team. It was the State of Green Business Report. Our 13th annual report came out on Monday. That's always a... <laughs> feels a little bit, and I'm you know, probably overstating this here, but a little bit like giving birth. <laughs> well, I don't know myself how that feels, but it is, I'm very full with pride <laughs> at, at our production here. And, and this, this is a great, a great group effort by so many people. And it is an amazing report. I, I know I'm saying that and I'm biased, but it's, it's a wonderful reflection of what's coming ahead and kudos to the creative and editorial and and to our partners at Troop Cost. Yeah. Uh, certainly to them. And you're going to hear a little bit uh, later from Rich Madison, the CEO of True Cost, from the uh, webcast that we did this week to launch the report. You're also going to hear a little bit from uh, uh, about a half dozen or more of our uh, colleagues from, at GreenBiz who wrote the 10 sustainable business trends for 2020 as i said in the in the webcast we've been doing this for 13 years so we've now done 130 trends uh, 10 of a year over that period of time and it's kind of fun to look back and see how we've done and how many things we called pretty well you know circular economy early on the esg mainstreaming of that focus on food waste a bunch of others and of course how many we thought were going to be big deals that weren't. And one that comes to mind is companies actively accounting for their natural capital impacts, and that being a proxy for not just not just efficiency, but also for risk and resilience. That hasn't yet become a thing. It still could. Uh, and maybe in this new world of ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics, uh, that will start to play a role. Um, by the way, did you read... Larry Fink's letter that he wrote, uh, the chairman of of BlackRock. Did you read it, Heather? I have read it. I feel very conflicted about it. I, I am so happy that, that there's leadership from this organization. But at the same time, they're not voting in a way that 
that really supports the positions that their that their CEO is taking, that their leader is taking. And I'm, you know, I I'm kind of I'm being skeptical. I'm being more skeptical than you, Joel. <laughs> maybe for a change, but but I do I do like this leadership. But I want to see the action. I want to see the the support um, in voting and and them really taking action at the uh, board level and, and and really pushing the companies instead of just saying that they're going to. Well, he addressed that in the letter. He said that last year BlackRock voted against or withheld votes from 4,800 directors at 2,700 different companies. And he said, given the groundwork we've already laid engaging on disclosure and the growing investment risks surrounding sustainability, we will be increasingly disposed to vote against management and board of directors when companies are not making sufficient progress on sustainability-related disclosures and the big business practices and plans underlying them. So, you know, past may not be prologue here. Uh, I certainly have seen a lot of the criticism of BlackRock, particularly in the activist community, for all of the leadership that uh, Mr. Fink has uh, espoused over the years and the notion that companies should have purpose and all, all kinds of things that are have been sort of antithetical to mainstream business philosophy. Uh, the company certainly has had its investments in fossil fuels, particularly coal and things that do not align with that. And, and one of the things that, that he said uh, is acknowledging that, that uh, they have their, their investments and they're going to, in, in things like thermal coal, but as part of a, a separate letter to clients that he sent out this week, he said that um, they're going to be launching new investment products that screen fossil fuels. They're going to be taking a new look at some at their existing investments in those and phasing those out. So, you know, it may not be perfect. It never, ever is. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, I was reading of this, you know, we're doing, as you know, at uh, Green Biz in a few weeks. Uh, there, I've plugged it twice. Uh, <laughs> the Green Fin Summit, uh, where we're bringing together uh, probably about 160 to 200 corporate sustainability professionals, along with uh, large institutional investors. And we've got a great list of those that are coming, and the ratings and ratings organizations to talk about how all of these things line up. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I sort of feel like to start off the day that the whole audience should read this letter in unison out loud. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. won't, we won't, I promise that we won't. But uh, it's, there are parts of it where I just, I, I read it actually on my flight from Dal uh, San Francisco to Dallas where I am now. And, and it was like, yeah, I just wanted to stand up and cheer because he is saying the right things. And to your point, how that's backed up in action is TBD. You know who else I want to read it out loud is the BlackRock employees, because I'd like to hear, and this is maybe a story for us, I'd like to hear more about what they're doing to help educate the, the people that have the direct interface with the clients in order to be able to execute on this. I love hearing about those new services and reading about those, excited about that for sure. I think this is one of those things, though, that these have been relationships in place for a long time. And the BlackRock employees and the people at the front lines will need education and how to deliver on this. Yeah, and, and it'd be interesting when uh, clients, I'm sure they already have this week, phone up their uh, account managers or uh, contacts at BlackRock and saying, is this really happening? Uh, it'd be interesting to see what the response is from from employees at BlackRock and how much how conversant they are and how much 
they're willing to say, no, this is the new, this is reality, we're all behind it, versus, uh, you know, we're, we're working on it, and we'll see, and a little bit more wishy-washy answer. I have no idea what the answer they're giving is, and of course, I'm sure it varies from person to person, but that, to your point, is, is I think, an interesting exercise, is how quickly does this filter down through the rank and file? So you're in Dallas, and I know we'll hear a little bit more about the Green Biz Executive Network meeting a little bit later in the program, but you're going someplace else next week. Where well, first of all, I'm in, Dallas, I'm in Dallas because uh, our, this is January, and as I said last week, we have three meetings. Uh, this month of the Greenwood's Executive Network, there's about 20 to 25 companies each meeting to, that we bring together for 24 hours for just great peer-to-peer learning. Uh, it's being hosted this week at eight, by AT&T, so we're meeting at their headquarters in the Whitaker Tower in downtown Dallas, Texas. AT&T probably needs no introduction, but a little later in the show, you'll hear from John Schultz, who leads the sustainability at AT&T. He'll talk a little bit about what's going on there. And yeah, next week I'm off to Davos, Switzerland. Davos, as we say, or Davos, as they say, to attend the World Economic Forum Annual Summit. And I have to put a caveat there that I will not be attending the actual summit. It's I am not worthy of credentials to get in the room in the Congress Center where the heads of state and corporate chieftains will be, but I will be involved with a a whole range of events taking place just outside of that area, uh, notably at the SDG tent, where there will be uh, just a a slew of meetings and and going on. I'm actually going to be emceeing a a circular economy dinner for WBCSD, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, uh, attending a number of of smaller dinners and uh, just have a lot of meetings lined up with uh, with people. So next week's show, Heather, uh, we'll talk about this in a second. We won't be uh, in t- around, and but uh, Shauna Rappaport will be co-hosting. She'll be in California, and I will be reporting from Davos and uh, sharing some of those interviews. And as I said, you'll be out next week. Uh, do tell. So I will be tramping around Yellowstone in snowshoes uh, on vacation with my husband. I'm doing a winter adventure in Yellowstone, a little bit uh, intimidated by the, the weather prospects, but uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to that. And I will be uh, reflecting on my role in the, in the bigger picture while I'm out there and under the stars and in the middle of nowhere without any cell service. Well, I'll... I'll, I'll pit your weather conditions with my weather conditions in Switzerland and the Alps in January. It's uh, uh, Ah, (laughs) right now the average just uh, is 31 high. It's Fahrenheit and 16 low, but there'll be a lot of snow on the ground and uh, should be interesting. So we will reconvene the following week and and, and see who, who got colder. (laughs) <laughs> share and share weather weather yeah. woes we talk about the weather a lot here yeah. sorry sorry listeners but uh i don't know it's a it's a common thread yeah I suppose. it's a thing but um another thing is uh, a lot more that happened last week and let's bring it up now in the week in review So I'll get us started with a piece by Katie Fernbacher, our senior writer and transportation analyst. She wrote about the commuter bus issue in Silicon Valley and why the companies, the tech companies in particular, need to think more about adding electric 
buses to their fleet. She got the story idea from a conversation with biotech company Genentech, which is adding electric vehicles to its fleet. And the reason this is such a big deal is that there are more than a thousand private buses that shuttle employees back and forth, up and down the peninsula um, from from homes all over the, the San Francisco Bay Area to their places of employment. And it has been, I know, I'm not, no, no, personally, but I know that it's been a social issue. The, the locally people do resent these buses. They, they create emissions. They also remind, they're a reminder that uh, of the gentrification that the tech industry has created. So this issue of commuter buses in the Bay Area is sort of a, a larger issue. And now, uh, as Katie is, is discussing in this story, we're starting to hear about whether or not these companies are going electric. Genentech seems to be among the first, um, and she's got calls in and has made calls into people like Google and Facebook, which obviously have a lot of buses on the road and need to do something, but they're not talking yet. So I, I this it's a great piece that introduces this issue. It's a I haven't seen any I haven't seen anything like it actually. I haven't seen any of their coverage of this. So it's it's a very unique piece. Yeah, it's really great to see this. Uh, back around 2014, uh, this was a huge issue, and the issue being the buses, uh, the thousand buses, as you mentioned, uh, overwhelming the streets of San Francisco as they picked people up in the morning and dropped them off in the evenings. They, as you said, they also come from Oakland and other parts of the Bay Area, but San Francisco's predominates. And um, that's calmed down. The, so there was an elitism, there was some traffic flow issues, and I think that's generally become a non-issue, but there, there is still these thousand buses. And by the way, there's only about 3,000 public transit buses in the same region. So this is, uh, it's, it's, it's nowhere near as big, but it's still significant. Uh, they really need to be uh, looking at their, not just at their emissions, but you know, these are the tech companies and these are the tech companies that have progressive sustainability programs, sometimes the bold, audacious ones, Google and Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, I mean, you all know who they are. Uh, and we've talked about all these companies doing a range of things, but getting to work uh, <laughs> has not been part of that in terms of uh, reducing their carbon footprint. And also they like to be at the cutting edge of technology and showcasing that because this, uh, among other things, is a big employee attraction and retention tool vehicle, I was going to say, literally. Uh, and so this, this is non-trivial in terms of not just a nice thing to do. Uh, this is actually something that companies feel they need to do. And the grid news is that the technology is now at a, at a place where they they can do it. And, and uh, what they will do along the way, and they did this to some extent with uh, renewable energy, is through their purchasing power, start to help bring down the costs as these companies scale up uh, and or attract new players into the market that aren't yet making uh, electrified uh, public transit vehicles. So uh, this is a, an encouraging step. And of course, eventually it won't be limited to the Bay Area, but the other big hubs of, of uh, technology workers and uh, presumably over the next decade, uh, just big hubs of workers. Yeah. Genetech in particular they're going to have more than half or close to half at least of their buses. Uh, they have 60 of them all together that, that transport 2,500 employees um, on a daily basis. Half of them will be electric, hopefully by the end of this year. There's also another company I wanted to point out, Halcon, which is a, 
a fleet provider and they're adding electric buses. They serve companies like Facebook and Google. And Facebook, by the way, is starting to dabble as well. So definitely uh, some, some forward motion here. <laughs> Literally, I like that. Uh, well, speaking of putting new uses to old things, uh, we had a piece uh, from Richard Conniff, environmental journalist, reprinted from Yale Environment 360, uh, called Could Abandoned Agricultural Lands Help Save the Planet? Uh, that we ran this week. And it's an interesting story that looks at the role of tree cover on degraded lands. Uh, and there's hundreds of or there's thousands of of square miles of, of abandoned farmland uh, throughout the world, in the United States, Europe, and Asia, certainly, that uh, planted with tree cover could play a major uh, significant role in the climate crisis. And there's uh, cite some uh, research that came out of um, the University of Minnesota found that abandoned lands uh, normally would take decades or even centuries to recover their original biodiversity and productivity, but uh, as an opportunity to plant trees, it can actually speed that up at the same time that it's reducing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it seems like a, uh, in some ways, a, a simple solution. Of course, they never are, but in, in somewhat of a no-brainer, we've got all this land and you could build more buildings on it or you know, pave paradise and put up a parking lot, I suppose. But uh, more deliberate efforts to plant tree cover on these lands is a potentially significant part of the climate solution package. Yeah, and just to have a, an idea of the scale of this, China is losing about uh, 7,700 square miles of agricultural land every year. Um, the U.S. has lost almost 98,000 square miles of farmland just between 1997 through 2018. So there is a lot of land that is becoming abandoned. And so the, the, the resource is large, if you will. The question is whether or not this land is fit for, for using. So that why was it abandoned in the first place? Was it because the land was not uh, was not good, if you will, the soil had been degraded to the point where it couldn't be used. Was it because of social conditions? So I think they and they didn't really go into that in the study, and I think that's one of the sort of question marks that remains about it, whether it really would be useful. But the fact is that we need to restart. Uh, we need to rethink how these resource could be used, and it's just a, it was one of those hey look over here kind of stories. You know, think think about this opportunity. And the third story I'd like to talk about is this week, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation launched a new circular analytics tool to help companies measure and therefore move forward faster on the circular economy. I love the tie into one of the 10 trends that we published in our aforementioned State of Green Business Report this week, which is that circularity becoming measurable, that that was a trend. And, and now we're getting seeing that coming out from EMF, the Ellen MacArthur folks, they, they launched a tool that's, that's going to uh, help companies, you know, b both transform an entire company and uh, the in inputs and outputs of materials and energy across operations uh, and, and then look at uh, how that tracks from year to year. But measuring circularity has not been uh, an easy thing to do. You know, in fact, they recognize the Ellen MacArthur Foundation that it may diff be difficult or even impossible to quantify the return on investment of a circular strategy. 
um, not to mention the results or, or, or of attempts to design out waste and keep materials and products in use while generating revenue. But they've come up with uh, at least 1.0, a set of metrics or a tool to enable doing that. And there's a number of companies that have just started piloting it, and we'll see how quickly, how well it works and how quickly it rolls out. Yes, and among those companies are IKEA and Unilever, companies that we often hear on the leading edge of of tests of new principles, especially in the circular economy. One of the things that I took away from this story was the difficulty you have measuring things at a strategic level, right? So the tools out there today are very focused on measuring a product, measuring the circulator of a particular product. And this tool looks at not just that, but strategy and planning. Does this company have the the groundwork and the foundation to, to innovate and to come up with new processes? Do the people, have the people been trained to think about it? How quickly can they make changes in their operational infrastructure? So it looks more at those elements um, as well as the product product metrics that we've we've heard about in other KPI tools for circular initiatives. So a more holistic approach, 100 companies have signed up so far and looking forward to hearing about the people that are actually using it in practice. As we said earlier, this week we had a webcast to launch the 2020 State of Green Business Report. It was uh, myself along with Rich Madison, the president of CEO of TrueCost, part of S&P Global, and cameo appearances from four of our writers. Uh, that would be you, Heather, along with Deanna Anderson, Sarah Golden, and John Davies. Uh, we're going to hear from some of those now, not from the webcast, but from additional interviews, we conversations we did with them. Uh, talk a little bit about the trends that they wrote and why they thought they were significant. So let's start with you, Heather. Uh, talk about your trend. So I had the shipping industry sales toward decarbonization, and that was a piece that I started thinking about actually a couple of years ago when I noticed some work that Maersk was doing, uh, as well as the International Maritime Organization. So the big reason we haven't seen meaningful progress here to date is because the maritime sector sits outside the jurisdiction of any one country. It's like aviation in that regard. And this stuff is really hard. So finding alternative fuels to take shipping and make it more uh, environmentally sound is a very technically and financially challenging matter. It's not a simple matter of, of electrification. It's, it's hard to put batteries on these ships. You'd need awful large batteries, which make, would make the ships awful heavy. So technically speaking, um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But this is an important thing to do because shipping really uh, is, is a quite impactful. It's about 3% of greenhouse gas emissions uh, today. It's growing quickly because of e-commerce. Uh, we're talking about trillions of dollars worth of global trade that are on these vessels. There's 50,000 vessels in the fleet to begin with. Another one of our trends issue was written by Green Biz Vice President and Senior Analyst John Davies. John, bots reporting, do tell. 
Well, you know, Joel, we hold our uh, Green Biz Executive Network meetings every, you know, nine times a year. And one of the topics that came up last year a lot was around ESG and investing and corporate reporting and how people are getting their information out there. And one of the things that I learned is that you know, there are investment firms that have these bots out there that are scanning 10Ks and 10Qs and looking for changes in wording to sort of get indications. I think one of the things that, that interested me the most was that most people think that it's all about the ratings and rankings, but most of the investors are really just looking at raw data. I mean, they'll take into account a little bit the ratings and rankings, but they really have a specific investment thesis and they're using more automation to get the information that they need. And on the flip side for companies, they're starting to find faster ways to roll up their emissions information and and other targets so that at the push of the button, they've automated processes. And so on that side, we see things like Salesforce's uh, cloud, sustainability cloud, as one of those kind of tools that is going to get more adoption in the industry. So sustainability cloud you just referenced, that's the new tool from Salesforce. Right, that is. And then we look at other, you know, on the other side from the investor sides, there's firms out there like Arabesque, which is collecting data from all sorts of social media, places like Glassdoor, you know, 10, 100 best places to work. And they're rolling all that up along with corporate sustainability information that they're pulling off the web. So the, that old adage that no pe- people don't read corporate sustainability reports may be true, but it's not just people. What's the implications that all these bots are crawling and looking for minute changes that people may not be able to themselves discern? Well, we're seeing that that corporate sustainability officers have to start thinking more in terms of SEO. Um, but it's also had another implication is that Maybe you don't have to worry about how big your report is or how small it is, but you just need to get the information out there so it's searchable, findable, and and then you can start the human side of going to these ratings and rankings and investment firms and having the conversation about where your program is and what you've been doing. So SEO for the non-techies is search engine optimization. It's how do you design a website or a report in this case so that all those spiders and bots out there, when they crawl the web, will find out what you want them to find. Do you get a sense that this is already starting to happen? Yeah, it's definitely happening. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be a topic at our GreenFin Summit at uh, GreenBiz20 in Phoenix. And we're going to see more IR um, connectivity to the sustainability folks because, you know, we're we're here. T- I'm here today talking to you. Yesterday, Larry Fink released his letter. It's only going to be more interest in uh, ESG. Great. GreenBiz Vice President and Senior Analyst, John Davies. Thanks, John. Thanks, Joel. What's on the road ahead for transportation? The focus this year is last mile delivery. Here with insights is Katie Fahrenbacher, senior writer and transportation analyst for GreenBiz Group. Katie, you've reported often about the pollution issues and emission problems being caused by the rampant growth in e-commerce. So what's the good news? What technologies will take the lead in 2020? Right. So the good news is that this sector is actually ripe for a lot of change. 
specifically lithium ion battery technology is now low enough cost and has enough energy density to reliably and cost effectively power delivery trucks. So those UPS and Amazon package delivery vans that drive around our neighborhoods are a pretty good application for an electric vehicle these days. And those companies can actually save a lot of money on fuel costs by switching to battery power. So uh, battery powered electric vehicles is one kind of hot technology that is emerging in the delivery space. So which retailers are leading the way? Are, do you have people that are making investments in these, uh, in these new technologies? Yeah, so it's a really early trend right now, but one of the um, biggest companies pushing this is IKEA, so parent company Inca Group, the Swedish put-together furniture uh, company that we all <laughs> love so much. They have a very aggressive sustainability plan, but so they are in particular focusing on doing electric last-mile delivery for all of their online purchased goods. So that will be in... Los Angeles, Amsterdam, Shanghai, where if you order something from Ikea online, it'll be delivered to you in an electric delivery van. So that's pretty exciting. Um, another one is Etsy. I know, Heather, you've written about Etsy as well, but they've purchased offsets to offset all their deliveries. So that's kind of an early step um, of what they're doing to remove the carbon emissions from their delivery supply chain. But they're also working on other more substantial ways to reduce emissions for de from delivery. So you know, they haven't announced any plans with that yet, but they are kind of investigating how they can do something beyond offsets. So those are two examples of, of companies that, you know, are pretty well known that are um, starting this very early trend of looking to electrify the, the delivery supply chain. So are they putting the pressure on the delivery companies? I mean, is that that's kind of where, no pun intended, the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah, so like in IKEA's place, they, they'll talk to their suppliers. So they'll talk to UPS, they'll mm. talk to Amazon, FedEx, those companies, and they'll try to, you know, they'll be a customer for them. They'll say, you know, if you put electric delivery vans in your operation, you know, we'll be really eager to use them, um, you know, maybe even potentially pay a premium for that type of service. But also say in some situations, they're working with alternative suppliers. So in Shanghai, they're working with some local companies that do uh, electric delivery truck sharing. So they, it's a company that builds up a electric de delivery truck fleet, and then they enable IKEA, but also other companies to use it. Since it's early technology, they're getting more companies to use these, and it's more cost effective that way. So they're turning to some kind of more alternative companies to help them do this when maybe some of the more traditional players aren't ready to um, fully electrify their entire fleets. You write that cities will drive much of the change. So where should we look for leadership and examples of, of good things to do? So in Europe, cities are being pretty aggressive on this front. So London, Madrid, cities in Germany, they're looking at their downtown urban centers and they're looking to remove traffic and also remove emissions. So lower, lower pollution in urban areas. Um, and so at the city level, they're really driving this, you know, mayors are using this uh, um, in Paris, for example, the mayor of Paris is reducing cars within Paris. Um, but, but some of these companies have specific um, plans around um, delivery and fleets. Um, so like in London, they've removed, you know, the, the largest like diesel trucks in the downtown London area. Um, and over the past 
several years and they are um, reducing air pollution considerably and also traffic. So um, it, a lot of this is happening at the city level. In the U.S., there's kind of some movement. Los Angeles is being pretty aggressive at trying to figure out how to reduce emissions and diesel from downtown areas. Uh, New York's doing it. congestion pricing. They're starting at the end of this year where um, delivery vehicles will, well, diesel trucks will have to pay a fee to enter the city center. And in my own uh, home down San Francisco, down Market Street is removing all passenger vehicles. So it's a little bit different issue, but they're removing, you know, a lot of cities are, are looking to kind of remove uh, fossil fuel powered cars and trucks kind of across the board and delivery is part of that. Well, thanks for dropping by, Katie. You just heard from Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer and transportation analyst. Thanks, Heather. Carbon markets are undergoing a radical transformation. GreenBiz carbon analyst Jim Giles joins me to chat about the ways in which removal will get more real in 2020. Jim, the idea that, that companies can use carbon offsets to reduce their footprints isn't really new. So what's different about the projects and commitments that, that are emerging in 2020? You're completely right. It isn't new. In fact, this idea is about 20 years old, uh, and it has been somewhat controversial over, over that time. But I do think things are changing dramatically and potentially for the better. Uh, so one of the big things that we're seeing is just a growth in this market. So the um, total size of the market for voluntary carbon offsets doubled in 2019, and we're expecting that growth to continue this year and, and the next few years to come. Um, and we're seeing major new players entering. So we're seeing uh, Shell, for example, one of the big oil companies starting to invest heavily in offsets. And aviation will be, uh, the aviation industry will be entering the market soon. And we're also seeing in conjunction with that, I think an, an overdue emphasis on ensuring that these offsets really deliver on the reduction in emissions or removal of carbon from the atmosphere uh, that, that they have promised to do so, but haven't always done so in the past. So why is that the case? Why haven't they done so in the past? Is it a matter of verification or, you know, what's, you know, the markets have been always somewhat suspect, at least in some people's minds. So how is verification getting more reliable? I, I think it's absolutely right that people are skeptical and suspicious because we've seen, particularly under the Kyoto Protocol, uh, a lot of projects selling offsets when they probably really shouldn't have been. So, for example, we've seen um, uh, we've seen countries that switched away from fossil fuel electricity generation over to renewable generation selling those credits on the market and, set and, and and trying to be paid for that switch when it would have happened anyway because it made economic sense because the reduction in the price of solar and wind. At the same time, we've seen a lot of money flowing into forestry projects that didn't deliver. Um, you know, we, they sold credits and then at some later date, uh, the, the forest that people invested in ended up being cleared for agriculture. Um, those are problems that we do know how to solve with better certification and verification regimes. And there are good organizations out there that are doing that. Um, in conjunction with that, we're also seeing the, the, the arrival of new technologies that I think can really, really help solve some of these problems. So particularly on the forest point of view, if you imagine we may want to invest in a, a forest protection project or a reforestation project that's taking place in a remote area, it's not easy to get to. Um, that, that's a 
that's something that's very hard to verify but with the emergence of relatively low cost high resolution satellite imagery uh, we can now check on those investments much more easily in fact almost on a daily basis and we're seeing the emergence now of the startup companies that provide that kind of verification process what other digital technologies are reshaping what's possible so I think there's there's some early work uh, going on in blockchain, which is which is really exciting. So Nori, one of my favourite startups working in this area, um, they sell uh, what they call um, carbon removals. So they're different from regular offsets in that many regular offsets are actually you're paying to avoid emissions. So we talked about a switch away from fossil to renewable electricity generation. That that's one way you might invest to avoid emissions. Noria focused entirely on removing carbon and other greenhouse, removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Their initial focus is on um, doing so uh, by working with farmers to uh, increase the soil that's stored in carbon. And uh, part of uh, Noria's long-term plan is to create a blockchain-based registry that will make it really easy and transparent to check the status of the, the carbon removals that people have invested in or companies have invested in. Well, I look forward to hearing more about all of those things and others uh, as you uncover them this year. That was GreenBiz Carbon Analyst Jim Giles on the future of carbon markets. Our State of Green Business Energy trend this year focused on the all-electric meme, particularly as it relates to commercial buildings. Joining me now is the author of that piece, Sarah Golden, GreenBiz Senior Energy Analyst and Verge Energy Chair. So Sarah, what's driving the construction of all electric buildings? Yeah, I'd say that it's three main things. One is that there's an increasing urgency to decarbonize and move away from natural gas. And there's an understanding if we want to get to 100% clean energy, that means that buildings really need to be all electric in order to not rely on natural gas. Another one is policy indicators. We've seen in California and also in Washington State and in New York and Massachusetts, among other states, that there are cities and counties that are restricting or banning new hookups to natural gas. Right now, this is mainly in residential, but it's indicating to the commercial sector that it's really now is the time to be thinking about getting natural gas out of buildings. And then all of that is also supported by the falling cost of technologies. And there's just new uh, electron, electric uh, technologies that are cheaper and more efficient than ever before. So for the first time, it really seems like it's possible. So is this happening with new buildings or existing ones? Right now, where I'm seeing a lot of movement is within uh, new builds. And of course, it's easier to be building a building from the ground up in an all-electric fashion than retrofitting a building that's been piped and created for natural gas. It also means that it's cheaper to build because you're not needing to do the natural gas hookups and connecting to utilities and then running that through the building general. in general. It's all done through just the electricity that's already in the building. But with that said, there are several places that are looking into how can we be retrofitting existing buildings. This is something I've heard from Adobe. The Stanford campus is looking at that. But it's generally uh, enough that organizations are still trying to track. But with the number of commercial buildings that are being built right now, it's a really good time to be thinking from a design perspective, how can we be optimizing this building and make sure that it has the least impact possible? 
so do, do any of commercial structures exist today? Yeah, so Kilroy, which is a commercial real estate developer located out of uh, Southern California, they have several buildings already in operation, commercial buildings that are all electric. About 16% of their portfolio is already all electric. And I think all the tenants there wouldn't know that it's all electric. It's not something that you, uh, you really notice. It's just whether the, the building is comfortable. And um, we're also seeing a couple other buildings that are commercial that are all electric, including the Build Center up in Seattle. It's rather common in residential complexes with condos and apartments, and we're really seeing this transition that goes to commercial office buildings right now. And while this is, I'm calling this out as a trend for 2020, it is a long process. Right now, Adobe's working on an all-electric building, but that won't be done for a few years. Right now, Microsoft is working on completely uh, changing their, their Redmond campus in Washington, which includes 14 all-electric buildings, but the first ones won't be online for the next year or two. So really, when we're talking about this being a trend, it's a trend for organizations to be thinking how they're building these buildings, and many of them we won't see online until after 2020. Well, thanks for your insights. You just heard from GreenBiz Senior Energy Analyst, Sarah Golden. So Joel, we'll finish this off with a discussion of your topic, which was nature-based solutions. I am curious, first of all, what is a nature-based solution and why are we seeing more action in 2020? Well, a nature-based solution, Heather, is basically any way to harness what nature does naturally uh, in the quest to mitigate uh, and reverse global climate change. Uh, so the obvious thing is something that's uh, as old as the trees is actually planting trees. We've been doing this for a long, long time. It's been one of the memes of school kids and governments alike in terms of, you know, plant a tree and help the environment. But now we're getting that to scale, and, and the, the offsets that are created by those tree plantings are maturing in the sense of they're more verifiable, they're, they're higher quality, there's more certainty about the, the impacts they will have. And so we're starting to see that scale up big time. One example of that is in the aviation industry. If you're going to ever make aviation sustainable, uh, there's basically two things you do, or maybe three, but the, th the first one is is around operational efficiency, and that happens anyway. But beyond that, there's something called sustainable aviation fuels, basically biofuels. And two is is offsetting the the, the rest of the impacts and at a, at a very large scale. But it's not just trees, a whole range, a whole menu, if you will, of other kinds of solutions, uh, uh, repairing mango, mangrove swamps or um, uh, a number of, of, of underwater habitats, things that allows nature to do what it does best. And, and we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the, the year ahead as a number of uh, events. There's a whole movement called Business for Nature that's, that's evolving, uh, run by the World Economic Forum and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. There's going to be a United Nations Biodiversity Conference uh, in China in October that's being dubbed by some as the Paris for Biodiversity, where these topics are going to come up. And in fact, uh, restoring degraded natural capital can actually contribute uh, to addressing 
about seven of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And for those of you keeping score at home, it's goals 1, 2, 3, 6, 7, 13, 14, and 15. Hit repeat if you want to get those again. But it's also in the State of Green Business Report, that that litany of, of, of SDGs. And so there's a lot of potential here, uh, both uh, in terms of, of what's possible There's a and in terms of the problem and the solution. There was a study that came out uh, last year from a group called FALU, the Food and Land Use Coalition, that said that more than 30% of the cost-effective tools to address climate change over the coming decade can be found in nature-based solutions and the shift to more sustainable agricultural land use and choices. So there's a lot of potential here. It's not just solar and wind and renewable energy. There's a lot more that can be done in land use and restoring nature uh, is a part of that. And of course, when you restore nature, you restore habitats, you restore biodiversity that goes to agriculture and a lot of other benefits that come out of that more than simply solving climate change. In this week's webcast, as I said, we had Richard Madison, the president and CEO of TrueCost, um, and I uh, wanted to play some clips from that. Uh, Heather, you picked a few that you thought were particularly interesting. Uh, let's hear them. So the first one I'd like to queue up is a commentary on carbon offsetting. I found this intriguing because it helped me understand why carbon offsets are necessary why they are, how they are viewed by investors, right? Whether investors think they're they're worthy of, of uh, attention, and also I, I they do fit with what we were just talking about, nature-based solutions. So Richard had some comments on carbon offset markets as well as how they are used, and here is that clip. There are sectors, hard to abate sectors, um, which you know will be hard to abate. Um, and so there will be a role for offsetting in the near term. Um, however, I think in general, you know, when we talk to uh, major global investors and institutional investors and pension funds, um, they do want to see individual corporate action rather than merely offsetting. Um, and so I think I think there, there is a kind of push, if you like, to see actual um, described strategies that will reduce emissions over time. And this is where the forward-looking element and the scenarios and the description of risks and the description of a climate strategy and the business model that is designed to address that, this is where all of that comes into play, which all of which are covered by the uh, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures recommendations. And that's why investors are so keen to see some of these disclosures, because they want to see how a company is actually going to change its business model. What are the industries of the future that an investor should be interested in? And to what extent are the existing companies entering into a new era? Are we entering into a fourth industrial revolution, which will decarbonize the world and uh, create a lot of other changes in nature? Or are we seeing business as usual? And so I think a lot of organizations that we talk to, a lot of companies, um, a lot of investors, actually, I should say, are really interested in that transition, if you like. But clearly, offsetting has a huge role to play. And I would, I would, I would also see as a trend, not just offsetting into man-made um, infrastructure required to reduce CO2 emissions like a wind farm, but also nature-based solutions. We may well end up um, you know, offsetting into energy solutions, which is, which is great and all required. But at the same time, we may well end up not actually 
offsetting into some nature-based solutions that may be more cost-effective in the first place and certainly have many, many co-benefits associated with that offsetting. In other words, protection of the water cycle, uh, protection of the ecosystem, protection of biodiversity, all in addition to climate reduction targets. So I think the world of offsetting is, is you know, moving at a fast pace. We've seen quite a few airlines, including uh, British Airways, actually recently announcing that um, they are offsetting emissions for their customers. And so we'll, we'll continue to see an increase in the trend for offsetting. But I think um, nature-based solutions will also be an interesting dynamic in that trend. The second excerpt I'd like to bring your attention to is a segment in which Richard talks about brown loans versus green loans. It's a, it's a general discussion of carbon markets and carbon pricing and carbon taxes and, and so forth and how carbon pricing could be affected by what is done at a policy level. So here's Richard on carbon markets. Traditionally, offsets should only be considered in the context of the set of emissions that are uh, hard to reduce or irreducible at that point in time. Um, that's the kind of logic uh, behind offsets. And so there should be another um, set of emissions that a, that a company may have that it should make best efforts to, to reduce itself. Um, so that, that's the kind of offsetting principle. Um, regulators are, are, are going to look at this and essentially say that they need to shift behavior and capital flow. And in particular, um, this is the reason why uh, sustainable finance plans that are emerging from different um, countries are so important is that they really are looking to to provide mechanisms to provide blocks to capital flowing towards companies that are not changing and are increasing emissions um, globally and enablers to capital that is flowing towards companies that are um, doing something about it or and are on a lower transition pathway if you like better transition pathway and so so I think it's a kind of long-winded answer, but essentially um, offsetting definitely has a role to play up until the point, I guess, when a price is imposed to the extent that that market mechanism will then introduce a separate lever to reduce emissions, if you like. But uh, watch this space because certainly in various different parts of the world, from our observations, we've actually seen it's not just as simple as a carbon tax or a carbon price. We've seen things like um, the discussion in Europe of the extent to which uh, if you're uh, a bank lending to a company that has a coal-fired power plant, that you might face higher capital charges to your balance sheet than a normal loan, which effectively means you have to charge more for your loan. So your interest rates will be higher for a brown asset. And for a green asset, you might find some capital relief so in other words, as a bank, you can offer lower um, rates of interest to a company funding green assets. Uh, and so that's, there, there is a debate that's happening at the moment in Europe around those principles. And in fact, in China, it is already cheaper to issue a green loan um, than it is to issue a brown loan um, because of some uh, principles introduced by the People's Bank of China in their supervision of banks in China. So, so I think... Um, watch this space because it's not just pricing, it's many other mechanisms that might introduce different ways of capital flowing and different ways of things being funded. Um, but offsetting certainly has a role to play in all of that. You did a great job, Joel, of wrapping up the webcast with a wonderful question for Richard. So that is what I'd love to point to as our third clip. 
This has your question to him as well as his answer, and it's really focused on how chief sustainability officers should, can, and will engage with others internally for discussions about climate risks. Well, we're winding down, but I have one more question for you, which is when you look at the role of sustainability executives inside the publicly traded companies that you track, how good a job do you think that sustainability execs have done in terms of engaging with their company's risk departments, their CFO, their investor relations, and others outside of the more operational facilities and supply chain side in terms of elevating a lot of these issues we've been talking about today and that we talk about in the report to the strategy level. What do you see as the as the, the trend there in terms of, or how would you grade the, the business community right now? Well, so I, I mean, I would say that, you know, having, having worked in this space for 20 years and I've met a lot of chief sustainability officers and others working in sustainability teams, um, they do their best job, the best that they can, at engaging those other departments. What I would say in term, more recently that we've seen is the reverse, is that the risk teams and the finance teams and the treasury teams have actually been asking more to work with the sustainability teams for a number of different reasons, not least because these teams need to understand the extent to which, for example, their credit rating could be affected by sustainability criteria, the extent to which their funding may be affected, the extent to which the loan or bond pricing could be affected by sustainability criteria. And this is a fast-paced, fast-moving world. And so I think it really will require um, huge amounts of collaboration between different teams and companies, not least because sometimes the finance teams have very limited knowledge of sustainability, um, but they may hold the purse strings and they certainly think in particular about how capital is issued, how how projects are funded, um, how capital is allocated within a company. Um, And so it will require... um, ever greater cooperation internally and ever greater integration, if you like, of sustainability into the core uh, of, of a company's risk register, into the core of a company's strategy as well. As I said earlier, the Green Biz Executive Network is meeting this week at the headquarters of AT&T in downtown Dallas. And with me now is John Schultz, the Director of Sustainability Integration at AT&T. Hey, John. Joel, good to see you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for hosting. You talked a few few minutes ago about uh, a program that AT&T is doing called 10X. Talk about that. Sure. Um, In 2015, AT&T was working on our suite of sustainability goals. And we had for a long time thought there was this idea that technology can enable our customers to be more efficient. So if you go back to the old days of the telephone, the ideas of let your fingers do the walking, right? Instead of having to walk, you know, drive to the store or you know, go somewhere to check something out, you can pick up the phone and find that information. So this idea of technology enabling efficiency has been around for a long time. In 2015, we set a public goal that really embodies that spirit. And it simply says that by 2025, we will enable our customers to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions equal to 10 times our own footprint. So it's a nice, we like that goal. It gives us an incentive to reduce our own footprint And it also really gives us an incentive and puts us on the hook to work with our customers to develop ways that our technology can help them reduce theirs. So uh, uh, it's really our take on a customer enablement goal. So uh, a cynic might say that, well, you're taking credit for someone else's success. Is that what's going on here? (laughs) 
<laughs> no, <laughs> no, that, that's funny. Um, what I would say is it's um, it's shared success, right? This is this is a win. We work together with our companies to help them solve business problems, and what's great about sustainability is that oftentimes um, their business motivations also can drive efficiencies that, that helps them reduce their environmental footprint. What, what we found is that um, sometimes they weren't even aware. They would buy a system for one reason, to save money, to create a new product. And along the way, whoa, look at this. You're, you're reducing your electricity footprint. You're reducing your fuel usage. You're eliminating waste from your processes. That can oftentimes be communicated and calculated back into a greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So, um, so we work very closely with our customers. And what, what's interesting is that oftentimes this environmental impact and reduction is an unintended and surprising benefit for them. And so our, our intention here is to work with them to define it, um, quantify it as best we can, um, and then raise awareness of it, right? Kind of raise this awareness of real-world solutions where this is happening. Customers are developing the solutions. We're quantifying the impact. And the idea, of course, is to, is to scale it up, get more people thinking along those lines of how can technology enable them to help their bottom line, generate new revenue, get new customers, and, oh, no, by the way, also help reduce your environmental footprint. Okay, I get it. So my question, though, is how does this help AT&T do things that it wouldn't otherwise have done? So it, it's, it's looking at the way we approach our customers through a new lens. So we are still thinking about the same things. We're a public company. We want to drive our revenues. We want to drive our customer uh, you know, satisfaction. All these things are, are true. What this is doing is it's creating a, a new way that we can bring value to that customer. So instead of talking about how, how secure the network is or how, how fast it is and all these great technical elements of it, for us, it, it is a new way of delivering that value to our customer. So it's, um, in some ways, it is the same thing that we've, we, we are doing. We're still using our, net, our network. We're still investing in, in 5G. We're bringing these new solutions. But now we're, we're thinking about it in, a, in, a, in an expanded view. So it allows for, for new types of solutions to come to market that, again, are built on what we do really well but they are delivering dip different types of value to our customers. And, and really, it's helping deepen our relationship with the customer because we're not just the phone company anymore. We're not even just the network company. We can start to collaborate them on kind of a more strategic, more operational, a higher level of value proposition. So it's, a, it's a definitely a different uh, way of thinking about it for our customers and, frankly, for our sellers. You know, our sellers are used to talking about some, some more, our more traditional Offerings, and now they get to talk to people about all kinds of different things beyond, you know, just bits and bytes. So it's no longer just the family plan. You mentioned that you have a number of stories, case studies that you're now talking about. Give us uh, one of those, just to bring this to a more concrete example. Sure, there there, there are a bunch, and I'm going to plug my website. So if you want to know more, go to att.com forward slash 10x 10x. There's a whole bunch of them there. Here's one that I really like, and it's unexpected. Uh, one of our companies is Emerson. You might recognize that name. They make Insincorator food grinders, which go it's probably under your sink. Um, they also make these things for industrial purposes, so stadiums, restaurants, grocery stores, these kind of things. What they wanted to do is they, re they realized that food waste is a tremendous source of greenhouse gas emissions. Something like if, if all the food waste were its own country, it would be the third largest emitter. It's, it's, it's crazy. And so Emerson, to their credit, realized, hey, this is a problem. What can we do to take that food waste? And instead of dumping it in the landfill, it turn, turns into methane gas, which just floats up into the atmosphere. Can we create a, an ability to co collect that and make it useful? So they, create, they created a really 
simple but also elegant solution. They collect the stuff, they grind it, they put it in, in this big uh, holding tank, and then they take it to an anaerobic digester where it turns into biogas. Elegant solution solves the problem. The problem was it was not scalable. They were having to put people there to babysit the thing. It was not a, uh, it wasn't very competitive in the marketplace financially. Emerson came to us, this, this solution is called Grind to Energy, by the way. They came to us and said, can you help us with this? We'd like to be able to scale this thing up. Can we hotwire this thing with the Internet of Things so we can see the, the, the status of the system? Is it working well? Is something about to break? We can see how full the tank is so we know when to roll the truck. All of a sudden, their cost of operating and delivering the solution went way down because by working with AT&T to have the sensors, the back-end analytics, the front-end uh, websites where the customer can see how it's doing, all this stuff we helped them d- develop. Now, grind energy is being installed in stadiums and, and grocery stores and these places where all this food waste was becoming a problem. This is, uh, we, oh, and by the way, we installed it at our, our facility in El Segundo, California. So it's um, really elegant. And what I love about this example is it's beyond kind of your basic idea of fleet telematics helping route optimization. All true, all good. What I love about this example is it, um, it helped a business model succeed. It was not just a technical solution or an operational solution. It changed a business model that brought something to market that previously was dead. And so I think it's an unexpected. Food waste is not what you were probably expecting to hear about, but it's an unexpected example of um, innovative solution that was enabled by the Internet of Things. No longer just the same old grind. (laughs) John Schultz is Vice President of Sustainability Integration at AT AT&T. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters in all. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. As I said, Heather will be off next week, and I'll be co-hosting from the Swiss Alps, and we'll be joined by Shauna Rappaport as my co-host from our Oakland studio. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. Mm-hmm.